Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. It's uh, the 27th of October, not Odark 30, because got up at Odark 30 and did other stuff and recording now. Anyway, um, want to get into cyber things specifically and kind of talk about some of the more hot topics that have shown up uh, this week. Um, there was a bunch of really interesting things that kind of got thrown out there. There's the Facebook shenanigans going on, which, hey, by the way, I'm on Facebook. Lots and lots of threes. I think 3.7 billion people are on Facebook, whatever. It owns all the stuff, the Instagrams and blah, 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 whatever. Folks, we're the product. I mean, that's the reality of it, right? If you're on these social media platforms, and yes, I am using a social media platform right now. I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever. We are the product. We are what they're making money off of. They're there to generate clicks and do whatever. And the ultimate evil empire can work that algorithm however it kind of sees fit to make money. Um, I can't fathom why this is so shocking to people in a whole bunch of different places, including Congress and whatever, where they're like, oh my God, Facebook twist algorithms so that they can make money off of people being engaged on content that may or may not be valid. Like, duh, this has been going on for a long time in a whole lot of other mediums. Now it's just been specifically modified for whichever purposes they decided to modify it for. I'm still reading through all the papers that were just released recently. Um, super interesting stuff, but you know, to to go back to some of the other things that have been talked about in the past, this is why data science, algorithms, math, all these other cool things we talk about in security and IT and this space are so interesting and applicable because when people are the product, when people don't know that they're interacting with, you know, content that may or may not be real or valid or malicious or whatever, and you modify the math, you manipulate the user, you manipulate the quote product, and bad things can happen. Um, I, I, as God is my witness, I have family members that are huge into Facebook, and and they've gone down a whole bunch of rabbit holes. And I have family members that I will unfortunately freely admit seriously believe that like lizard DNA people run parts of the government because of stuff they've read in you know those forums. Um, can't talk them out of it. And can't kind of, you know, validate that they're not total idiots, but it is what it is. The point being, they're the product. They've been manipulated. They've been modified in their approach to reality. And logic has gone out the window, but that didn't happen because they're not, you know, hopefully decent people. It happened because of the fact they went down rabbit holes and you get in the echo chamber and the algorithms continue spitting stuff back at you. And it's validating your insanity and you just keep going down that rabbit hole and it's not good. Um, I'm enjoying watching this whole thing burn, to be perfectly honest. Anyway, uh, I want to go into this article that was published, uh, Joseph Marks in the Washington Post, um, talking about uh, basically the title of the article, those who expose cyber vulnerabilities risk getting attacked themselves. And this is in reference to the Missouri Governor Mike Parson who condemned uh, the St. Louis dispatch for exposing a flaw in a state database. You know, and the, if you're not familiar with this, the St. Louis dispatch uncovered dangerous bugs in a state website. The governor jumped on it, lashed out and said, uh, you shouldn't do this. Uh, this is not okay. I think he was talking about taking people to court and whatever. Um, the, the bug, which was bonehead simple, could have given malicious hackers access to the social security numbers of about 100,000 state educators exposing them to identity theft and other fraud. Okay, honestly, 
I would say that's not that big a deal because all of that shit has already been compromised 25 times over. I mean, how many people in Missouri that are state educators have not already been notified, hey, your data has been stolen. So for them to go off and freak out about this, uh, like I get it, you're a politician, you're standing up for whatever, but this is not something, honestly, this is not the hill to die on, in my opinion. Um, the newspaper did the right thing, alerted the State Department uh, that there was a bug before, right, publishing to minimize the potential damage. So they did the right things, but the governor flipped out. He went after the paper, claimed it violated a state anti-hacking law, which is freaking comical if you go read through the law. Um, he got an investigation with the State Highway Patrol Digital Forensics Unit and said that his administration had spoken to a prosecutor in Cole County. Um, okay, like, whatever. I mean, literally, you hit F12. This was the joke running on Twitter and whatever else. Hit F12 and you're a hacker, right? You can see the stuff. It It's not even, I wouldn't even call this a, 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 a cyber-related bug. This is just fucking bad programming and really, really bad security. Um, and uh, I don't think anyone should be in trouble for this. Honestly, I think they should be given an award for the fact that they tried to do the right thing. And by the way, after they did the right thing and, you know, the folks didn't respond and fix the problem um, and the governor looked bad, then it becomes an issue because this is really all about optics and uh, all of a sudden it's a problem. Um, you know, websites and vulnerabilities, I mean, go off and if you know what you're doing, you can find a thousand of them this morning. Um, find, you know, that data is publicly available if you know how to look. It's not really that difficult. And if you don't, go on YouTube and look. <laughs> at, just Google it. You'll find the answers you're looking for. Um, you know, the, basically the argument that came back and forth here was the governor's office is trying to divert attention from the fact that they left people's social security numbers exposed and they're criminalizing good reporting. So fight between the media and the governor and, you know, the, the back and forth that's going on there. Um, I can say from personal experience, five, six something years ago when I was still living down south, I found a vulnerable database for a state related system, sent the information to the appropriate parties, did all the notifications, whatever else. They sent me a cease and desist letter and they sent uh, an agent to come and get my machine. Um, and they did. They took it. And I, that, that's what it, rather than sure enough, a few years later, that very system was compromised in a big time public deal. Uh, and that's part of the problem. You know, it didn't get on the news or anything because I'm not a reporter, but uh, that's, that's what's going on here. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, there's another part of this article that where the, one of the attorneys says uh, for the, for the, uh, the newspaper, I've had numerous clients who think they're doing something for the public good, exposing information like this. And because people or institutions that have had bad information security embarrassed, they go and kill the messenger, which is exactly what this is. Also goes into most hacking laws were written long before the modern internet. Mm -hmm. This makes it tough to figure out what counts as hacking and what doesn't. Uh, you know, there was a common flaw in the database. You hit F12, reload the page, or do your super cool, you know, uh, super hacker thing and just look at the freaking webs, the source code, and you can see all the stuff. Um, the governor painted the action as far more nefarious. He's, you know, if you go look at his Twitter account, um, he cited a Missouri law, which, okay, uh, criminalizes accessing personal information without permission, apparently, even if the information was publicly accessible on the open internet. So how would you be liable for someone putting people's social security numbers on a billboard on Highway 95? Does that, I mean, that's the same thing. You can drive down the road and look at it. 
How are you liable for that? How should you be in trouble for that? If anything, you should go off and go, hey, there's a billboard with 100,000 people's information on 95. We should fix this problem. And they should fix the problem. And everyone should go on about their day. And life should be good. And maybe you get a thank you. But that's not what happened. Uh, the governor said, under Missouri law, a person commits this the offense of tampering with computer data. They didn't tamper with anything. They didn't tamper with nothing. If he or she or whoever knowingly and without authorization accesses, takes, and examines personal information, section 590.095, this data, and this is him saying this again, the governor, was not freely available. Yes, it was. It was on the open internet. All I had to do was look at the source code, which is part of what makes websites work. And by the actor's own admission, the data had to be taken through eight separate steps in order to generate a social security number. False, inaccurate, not correct. Um, this is not, not the way that it was. The reading was essentially his his position was that would make it a crime to alert any organization about security security law with the, without the organization's permission. That's not good because you want people looking at things and finding problems, vulnerabilities, and saying, "Hey, here's an issue. You should fix it." Um, it that means everything would be less safe. This that's not good. Uh, you know, then there's a whole bunch of stuff about the the rabbit hole that they go down of people supporting him and saying that the fake news media is on this and whatever and politics aside, this is not the way to, to, to do this and to deal with the problem. Um, if you go look at the federal law, right, the federal law that's applicable in this case, potentially, is the CFAA, uh, Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, 1986, right? And it's been the longest and biggest deterrent to cybersecurity researchers and cyber criminals. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court did issue a ruling in June of this year, 2021, that narrowed how courts should interpret that statute, though cybersecurity advocates say the ruling left much uncertainty in lots of cases. You know, previously, some judges and prosecutors interpreted the CFA so broadly that critics argue make it illegal to violate a dating site's terms of service by lying about your height or weight or an employer or whatever else, etc. So, you know, this kind of goes back to the, the conversation that's happened very often of the people in charge don't understand what the hell all this stuff means. The lawyers don't understand the intricacies of how technology works. Privacy and security don't necessarily work well together when people are trying to shove the two into the same Reese's peanut butter cup and you, you have these issues. Um, and what does this do for the good guys? This means that good guys that will find problems like these reporters aren't going to do that and aren't going to let you know. Like the next time that this happens because of this, someone's going to go off and find a vulnerable database and you're just going to go, uh-uh, I'm not touching that. Nope. And you just leave it. And what happens then? Someone goes off and gets ripped and bad shit happens. This is not okay, not cool. Uh, I think that there's going to be more follow-on from this. Um, and yeah. So uh, other interesting stuff that I found this week, Microsoft.com did a security blog. And I thought this was super interesting because it talked about trend spotting email techniques, how modern phishing emails hide in plain sight. And this was authored by the Defender Threat Intelligence Team. Now, this was interesting to me because you see all the stuff going on in the market about training and education and people spotting fishing, whatever else. There's a lot in here that I don't think the human being would ever be able to pick up on. There was stuff that um, that I've learned about that I, I mean, I consider myself relatively, um, you know, know, knowledgeable in the space around this stuff. I didn't know about this. You know, brand impersonation with procedurally generated graphics. Yeah, okay, fine. It's basically HTML and CSS to copy a brand and slide that into a phishing email and they look really valid, really, really real. Okay, cool. Makes a lot of sense. You hear that all over the place. Sure. Uh, you go down further and they start talking about text padding with invisible characters. 
Now that gets a little more interesting. You're talking about Unicode. Um, you're talking about how these are thrown into the mix uh, to kind of circumvent a lot of controls, a character obfuscation. What human's going to pick up on that? And they have a really good GIF in here that walks you through how that would affect an email, how that would affect stuff within that that sent attachment. And you, when you see that, you kind of go, oh, whoa, there's no way that I as a human probably would have picked up on this. And if the cybersecurity people wouldn't have picked up on this, what's the likelihood that a regular non-cyber person would? They also talk about a really interesting technique called zero-point font obfuscation. This technique involves inserting hidden words with a font size of zero into the body of an email. It's intended to throw off ML, machine learning detections, by adding irrelevant sections of text to the HTML source making up the email body. Attackers can successfully obfuscate keywords and evade detection because recipients can't see, physically can't see the inserted text, but security solutions, quote, can. Now, yeah, it probably is lots of those that pick up on this, and they do talk about Microsoft Defender does that, but how many times has this slid by would be my question. Um, this sounds like something that you could get by pretty easily, and uh, looking at the attachments here, I don't picture... 99% of humans picking up on this, myself included. Um, so if you're interested in like email and phishing and circumventing security controls or especially training education, check this article out. I think it's totally worth uh, a read. Now, going forward from there, um, there was a couple of things that bounced around as far as the uh, the approach that the the White House is going ongoing public U.S. efforts to counter ransomware. Um, this was kind of in the last ten days or so. Um, talks about the administration and what they're doing. Um, the administration's counter ransomware efforts are organized along four lines of effort: disrupt ransomware infrastructure and actors, which you've seen that in the news. I think there was an article that came out yesterday about a, a ransomware gangs, you know, getting hit. Um, I, I think the media should stop honestly reporting that these gangs have been taken down. They're not taken down. They're pissed off. They're irked. They're going to reappear somewhere else. You're not arresting them. They're not going to prison. So just give it time and they'll be back. Bolster resilience to withstand ransomware attacks. Sure, there are solutions on the market. There are techniques and tactics that can be applied that limit ransomware's effectiveness. Number one right now, go off and shut off PowerShell. Uh, address the abuse of virtual currency to launder ransomware payments. Yeah, they talk about anti-money laundering. They talk about uh, countering uh, financing of terrorism. So kind of interesting to see that that uh, statute-ish sort of side of the equation is being applied here. Um, I'll be interested to see where that kind of falls out. Will that be applicable? And will you be able to track it and present that in court and et cetera? I don't know. Maybe. Um, could be. Could be difficult. Leverage international cooperation to disrupt the ransomware ecosystem and address safe harbors for ransomware criminals. Good luck. Uh, that one's the one where I just look at this and I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, may the, may the force be with you. Uh, I, do, I do believe that there was an, a recent incident where a couple of, quote, ransomware operators were arrested um, internationally. And I, I, my guess is that those were, you know, I talked about this two months ago, um, that those were give ups by uh, the Russians to basically say, like, look, here's. Here's a little something to keep you happy. Um, yeah, we'll give you the bad guys when we know where they are. Wink, wink. A couple of folks, big deal, sacrificial lambs, whatever. Uh, most of the folks that are doing criminal, real criminal ransomware stuff, 
not going to find them. They're non-extradition places. And if we do get really stupid lucky, you might get one or two, but you don't get the whole organization. You don't get the, the zit. You just get to pop the pimple. Um, and that's not going to make a whole lot of difference to be honest. Uh, you know, disrupting they, they, this, this thing on the whitehouse.gov uh, goes through what they've done and what they kind of, you know, um, joint task force. Okay, great. More bureaucracy sanctions against virtual currency exchange. Okay. Yeah. I think that there's some useful stuff there. Um, more sanctions, ransomware folks don't give a shit about sanctions. So whatever. Um, NSA and cyber command are doing more pointy tip of the spear type stuff. Good. I think we've seen some of that starting to pop up. You have to kind of do a little bit of, uh, you know, mental extrapolation. Uh, you hear stuff in the news and you see it online and you can kind of go, oh, that's probably part of that. Um, and then a $10 million reward for identification uh, and location of a person who, while acting at the direction under a control of a foreign government, engages in aids or abets certain malicious cyber activities against U.S. critical infrastructure. 10 million bucks. Okay. Yeah. I mean, 10 million bucks is enough to turn somebody in, but are you going to give me my $10 million if I'm living in a place where they're going to kill me after I turn them in? Probably need to ferret that out too. And, you know, break that down too. um, industrial control systems, cybersecurity initiative. Uh, yeah. ICS initiatives got 150 electricity utilities, 90 million customers doing ICS things. DHS and U.S. government established a stonsbransomware.gov website. Okay, TSA is involved. Well, good shit, you had me till TSA. Uh, um, President Biden met with private sector and education leaders, uh, talked about a bunch of initiatives to bolster the nation's cybersecurity. Treasury Department, you know, virtual currency. The last part of this, um, the bolster international cooperation. If you read through this, you can really see that this is where it, it all falls apart um, closely with international partners. Okay, good. Galvanize global political will to counter ransomware activities. Mm, I don't think that's going to make a whole lot of a difference. Um, talks about G7 and NATO. Now, if you've ever done anything in the military or you've done anything in government or intelligence agencies, whatever else, and you see how dysfunctional G7 and NATO and all these other inter cooperations things are imagine how if you put that lack of actually getting things done and more bureaucracy internationally into the mix around cyber and it just becomes increasingly more complicated is it good that we're working with those other entities yes is it helpful hopefully the reality side of it though if we really look at it and be honest about it is it going to make much difference probably not immediately maybe we'll get something on the far end of it maybe there'll be some more collaboration but from past experience and from seeing this stuff. And I think anybody can go look at the history of what's going on with NATO and G seven and all these other alliances with foreign countries and whatever else they're busy taking care of themselves and rightfully so. And we don't do a good job of collaborating and we don't do a good job of executing operations internationally when it's trying to get into those regions. So I mean, look at the war on drugs. The war on drugs has been going on since what the sixties or seventies. And here we are 2021 and we're still kind of in the same place we were then. So how are we going to do this in cyber and expect it to be any better? Again, I'm not trying to like poo-poo or, you know, do seagull stuff on this where you fly in shit all over it and fly away. I'm just saying we aren't really being honest and realistic about the outcomes that we should expect here. And if you don't have realistic expectations of the outcomes, 
you wind up being disenchanted and disenfranchised because you're not getting what you expect. So I think we need to be a little more um, realistic about this because it's not, it's not going to make a whole hell of a lot of difference anytime really, really soon, unfortunately. Uh, there was an article in the Hacker News on October 20th uh, by Ravi Lakshmanan, I think I got that right, about two Eastern Europeans, which this is kind of that article I was referencing where Eastern Europe, you know, waka waka, probably tossed up by those uh, groups over there trying to give her a little good faith for providing bulletproof hosting to cyber criminals. Two Eastern Europeans have been sentenced in the U.S. for offering bulletproof hosting services to cyber criminals who used that infrastructure to distribute malware and attack financial institutions from 2009 to 2015, so for six years. Um, the uh, folks in here, one of them's 30, uh, the other one's 33, so they were doing this stuff when they were pretty young. Uh, Lithuania is where they came from. Uh, they were sentenced to 24 months and 48 months in prison, respectively, for their roles in the crime. Uh, court documents showed that those folks worked as administrators, for an unnamed bulletproof hosting service provider that rented out IP addresses, servers, and domains uh, to folks that sent uh, Zeus, SpyEye, Citadel, Black Hole Exploit Kits, and others, and were known for siphoning banking information and credentials. Uh, bah, bah, bah. So here's where it gets a little bit, you know, where I said that there's kind of that uh, side of someone was given up. Uh, the development comes months after... Uh, those individuals, along with services, Russian founders, uh, pled guilty to a RICO charge, which RICO is when you get a lot of folks into a uh, criminal organization, racketeering influenced corrupt organization thing. Um, and basically they all got tied together, maximum penalty of up to 20 years of prison. Um, and they, they kind of ratted each other out, pled guilty, etc. So, you know, it, it, did we get somebody? Sure. Did we arrest a few people? Uh-huh. Was it is it going to make a whole hell of a lot of difference? Eh, it's better than nothing. And it does show that maybe you can finally get somebody somewhere. But is it going to change the game? Probably not unequivocally. Uh, now, I'm a big fan of, uh, not I'm not a big fan of, because that sounds weird, but I'm very interested in uh, misinformation, disinformation, theories, you know, conspiracy stuff, whatever. It's just interesting for me. Um, I thought this was pretty interesting. So China is pushing a new COVID origin theory, Maine lobsters. Uh, this was published in uh, NBC Boston, October 21 uh, of this year. Um, and it, it, the, the article itself actually goes into, and I tried to find, I found the research for the actual uh, stuff that's referenced here. In mid-September, Marcel Schleves, a disinformation researcher at the University of Oxford who'd been tracking messaging that Chinese diplomats and state media spread on Twitter for 18 months, spotted the emergence of a surprising coronavirus origin theory. Uh, Jia Liu, the Chinese general consul in Kolkata, India, was tweeting an unfounded claim that COVID-19 could, quote, have been imported to China from the United States through a batch of Maine lobsters shipped to a seafood, mar seafood market in Wuhan in November 2019. Um, this is the latest in a series of theories that have been pushed by pro-China Twitter accounts since the start of the pandemic. You know, this researcher, Schleibs, uh, Schleibs, I think, uncovered a network of more than 550 Twitter accounts, which he shared with NBC News, spreading a nearly identical message translated in multiple languages, including English, Spanish, French, Polish, Korean, and Latin. At similar times every day between 8 and 11 a.m. China Standard Time. Some of those accounts were just sock puppets with very few followers, 
um, while others appeared to be accounts that were once authentic but had been hacked and hijacked and were then reused to spread that disinformation. So, you know, here's, and like I said, I went through the actual, uh, the guy's research that was published at Oxford and he goes through the things very, very, he's working on his PhD. I mean, he goes through the, the reality of what's going on here and the very specific details. And you can see how this would work. Like this is the exact scenario that has been talked about in a lot of uh, forums over the course of the last couple of years of how would you as an organization, China or Russia or the United States or whoever, um, manipulate a narrative and try and push that message and then have it get picked up. And that's exactly what happened here of, okay, how do we twist this narrative and how do we change the coronavirus conversation? Well, we brought, it was brought into China through lobsters that were shipped over to Wuhan. Okay. And then you go off and you do bots and you hack accounts and you get those and you publish them. Uh, you, you continue to chime the same message daily, 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 daily. And eventually it gets picked up because of the algorithms, the fact that people interact with the content, the fact that you're generating conversation and it gets bigger, better, faster. And then ultimately the narrative becomes whatever you want the narrative to be. You know, so was this, um, you know, hardcore, big time cyber effort? Not necessarily, but is it, is it interesting to kind of wrap your head around, could you manipulate a narrative on a disinformation campaign using 500 plus Twitter accounts to drive topics and conversation and push your message, even if it is totally inaccurate. And here's evidence that that's the thing. And if that's the thing for this, how would that be applied to something as big as like an election or a national issue or you name it with thousands or potentially millions of Twitter accounts or Facebook accounts or bots or whatever? So I think that this is a great example of some of the problems that we actually face. Uh, and this is indicative, in my opinion, of how this narrative manipulation becomes more mainstream. If someone can do this at this sort of crafted scale across that and actually get their narrative pushed, what happens when we go into this next cycle of you know, major turmoil? Just imagine it can get really big, really fast and be really problematic. And people believe what they read, especially if you put video on it. Imagine if you did that with a, a deep fake of someone handing this box of infected, uh, uh, of coronavirus infected lobsters to someone in Wuhan. Like all of a sudden it becomes a whole other, a whole other thing. Video, people believe video. People buy it, even though for some reason people don't realize like freaking dinosaurs aren't real or they're dead. Um, you know, we can manipulate the narrative. We can manipulate the video. Anyway, I want to put my, my tinfoil hat on and go down, you know, in, into the nether realms of disinformation. But, you know, between going on the goings on with Facebook, between the fact that there's been, you know, all the crazy stuff going uh, bouncing around in the news about these types of activities, I think it's worth noting. I think this is interesting because this was a, a PhD researcher that was publishing this information. It was totally nonpartisan, totally non-biased, and very, very accurate information with really good data to drive it. Anyway, I could go on for another hour. There's so much news in the space, uh, and I had to do a little bit of traveling last week to finally get out and speak with people, and it was great because no one burst into flame, and we were in all the room together. Um, so we're, we're starting to see some you know, back to normalcy, maybe. Um, and everybody showed their COVID card and life was fine. Yeah, I, politically, I get it. Like, I don't want to carry a card with me either. But right now, if I can get out of my damn house, then it means I got to show somebody my creds. 
I live with it. Anyway, uh, hope you have a great week. Thank you very much for your time. Cybersecurity is still the most interesting space in all of technology. And above all, stay safe and stay secure. Disclaimer, the information in this podcast episode, aka episode, is provided for general information purposes only. By listening to this episode, you understand that this is not specific technical guidance from the host. No information contained in this episode should be construed as security advice from the author, host, or guest, nor is it intended to be a substitute for security advice on any particular subject matter. No listener of this episode should act or refrain from acting on the basis of any information included in or accessible through this episode without seeking the appropriate technical or other professional advice on the particular facts and circumstances that are discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All views expressed therein are those of the host and his guest and should not be considered as being endorsed by nor related to the host or the guest's employers.